What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hi, dear listeners. This is Kate Riga. I'm here to make a quick pitch that you consider becoming a TPM Prime member. TPM has used the member model for over a decade now, and our loyal members are the only reason we've been able to weather the turbulence of the media landscape and avoid the fate that has befallen so many other independent outlets. For $70, you get no paywall, fewer ads, access to the Hive member forum, a members-only newsletter, and more. For $140 a year, you get all of that, plus no ads at all. Without our members, there is no podcast, not to mention that I'm out of a job. Thank you so much for listening and supporting us. We couldn't do it without you. Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast with Kate Riga. We've got a bit of a grab bag of a lot of different news stories today. And before we even get to that, I want to tell you that normally we record the show at noon on Wednesday. But today, dealing with some logistics about covering the Supreme Court and so forth, we're doing it a day early. So we're actually recording this episode just after 12 noon on Tuesday, February 20th. So the episode uh, should be out this afternoon. And so just kind of making that clear so you get a sense of where we are in the news cycle. Some of the points, some of the stories that we're going to discuss today might have changed by tomorrow. So just keep that in mind. So First thing we're going to talk about, well, let me give you a little preview. We're going to talk about, as you know, there was this civil fraud verdict in New York State against Donald Trump and a bunch of things about that. One of the interesting things we're going to discuss is the headline was that he'd gotten hit with a verdict for $350 million. But that is actually a little misleading because the judge also added interest payments and how those are calculated exactly is too complicated to get into, at least for the intro. But in effect, the actual judgment, the actual amount that Donald Trump has to pay is closer to $450 million. And then when you add the verdicts he has for the defamation of Gene Carroll, you're over half a billion dollars, basically, well over half a billion dollars that he owes. And so we're going to get into that. We're also going to talk about 
the ongoing drama around Fannie Willis down in uh, Atlanta, some Biden impeachment stuff, and then this Ezra Klein thing. And I, I, you know, I don't know if you saw the piece that I, I published a response to him yesterday, and it, and it it got a lot of attention because his piece is getting a lot of attention. And this this is part of the whole Biden age thing and presidency thing, uh, you know, whether he should be running for reelection. And it's, you know, God, it's the story that I keep coming back to. And I truly do not want to even think about it anymore, let alone write about it. But these people in the news business that I am in, uh, some of whom I know, some of, you know, whatever, just keep coming up with these like totally crazy ideas. And I feel compelled to uh, respond in some way, not because I'm like some kind of Biden dead ender or something like that, but because like, what's that, what's that meme? Like, you know, am I taking crazy pills here? Are, are you guys, am I nuts or are you nuts? And I think I'm not nuts. So we're going to, we're going to get into all of that, but let's start with this Trump civil fraud thing. And so, as I just said at the beginning, in effect, he's been ordered to pay $450 million, give or take, as a, a judgment for run, running fraudulent business enterprises in the state of New York. That's not surprisingly, we don't allow that in, uh, in, in New York State. So, Kate, walk us through what happened last week. I mean, in effect, Letitia James basically got everything she asked for. You know, the disgorgement total was like right in the neighborhood of what she was asking for. She wanted Trump to have a lifetime ban from the New York real estate office and then Don Jr. and Eric to have five-year bans apiece. The judge ultimately banned Trump for three years and then each of the sons for two. Uh, two of the top execs, you know, the former uh, CFO and the former controller got lifetime bans from heading up any uh, financial institutions in New York. They're, you know, Trump and co are prevented from getting loans from New York financial institutions institutions for three years. They have to have, you know, an independent monitor for years and then pay for their own kind of independent director of compliance after that period. So, you know, it's bad for Trump. And <laughs> this is a, a judge, this guy and Goron, who has this very um, kind of fanciful writing style. So a lot of the quotes were getting a lot of play, you know, talking about how their, you know, their lack of contrition borders on the pathological, saying, you know, that if they're not judicially restrained, he is very sure they will continue to commit fraud in the future. So I mean, it's damning and it's bad for him. Like, I know that we're really wedded to this narrative of, you know, it's it's good for Trump to kind of be in the crosshairs of the courts because it deepens this narrative that everyone's out to get him because he's trying to, you know, upend the old world order, blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, okay, but now he's got to pay, you know, this will go on appeal and he'll try to get the amount lowered. But right now in the neighborhood of $450 million on top of the, what, 90 million or so that he owes to E.G. and Carroll. And as this case proved, you know, because it was all about Trump's kind of, of false inflation of the worth of his assets to get more favorable loan conditions, a lot of his assets are not actually worth as much as he would like them to be worth, which was really some of the delight of this ruling was seeing 
the cherry picked instances where Trump kind of bloviates about how much his various assets are, are worth. You know, he thinks that Mar-a-Lago is like, a, you know, a billion, one five, something like that, which the, the judge quips like it would have to be zoned differently and also be like the most valuable property in all of the United States. So, you know, he's got a money problem. And that's not the least worrying thing when you've got a guy who's famously chummy with, you know, autocrats and, and, and oligarchs in like various nations that he might have to come calling to at this point. Now, isn't there as well, I learned this or at least was brought home to me in, in the Gawker case, in, in which case it seemed quite unjust. But generally speaking, in civil litigation, if you want to appeal, you've got to pay up the money, not not necessarily pay it to the, the plaintiff, in this case, the state of New York, but you've got to put it in escrow. So you can, the point being, you can't just think you are going to not pay it or not have to kind of cough up the money because you're in an appellate process. And I remember, you know, I learned a lot from the Gawker litigation, which of course bankrupted Gawker. And that was a that was a particular set of facts because it was a given. It was it was treated as maybe not quite a given, but incredibly likely that the judgment against Gawker would never stand up on appeal. Just no way. No way it would stand up on appeal. Yet, they had to put up a bond for the complete judgment, which was, I, I think, truly not remembering at the moment, but something like you know $100 million. They couldn't do it. So, they went bankrupt. So, the fact that the they basically had a runaway trial court, which made a judgment that was never going to stand up on appeal, bankrupted that website. I don't want to get into all the different stuff about Gawker, controversial site, but that really, in many ways, paved the way for a lot of things in the Trump era. And of course, it was bankrolled by a guy who turned out to be a major Trump supporter. But in this case, uh, fast forward, this is not a you know, who knows what could happen on appeal. But this is not a, a, a rogue trial court. This is everything I've seen is that the conduct of this case, the ruling is pretty standard. It's just that it's applied to Donald Trump. So what do we know about what he has to put up? Doesn't he have to put up something to to appeal both of these cases, this and the Gene Carroll case? To my understanding, it's a bond type situation um, where he has to front some of it. I, I really don't think it's all of it. I don't, I mean, he definitely doesn't have that much money liquid at the very like least. Like half a billion dollars in cash. Yeah. Right, very exactly. few people have that much liquid. Um, but I think in a bond though, when you do that, I mean, it's like going to, you know, it's like going to a bail bondsman, you put up a percentage of it. But I think that per, the entity that puts up the money, they are on the line for the money. So you go to person, you know, you go to entity X, you put down 10% and they sign the bond for you. But the, at least as I understand this, and maybe this is different in this case because the amounts are so huge. When you have a bond, someone has to be on the line for that. And in that case, that someone's going to want to know where the money is going to come from if, if Trump loses. So I don't know where that 
where that plays I mean, that in here. Kind of leads Trump into hawking sneakers at, at sneaker con in Philadelphia, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah, but you know, the interesting piece of this too is it just so kind of intensifies Trump's need to win the election, you know. And that being said, he would still, even in that case, have less kind of obvious sway over this case than some of the others he's embroiled in, because obviously presidents can't pardon. This is happening in state court, right? So he couldn't just like pardon himself um, in that situation. Well, and also that if the it's it's not entirely on par with the with the Paula Jones case, um, which obviously wasn't a criminal case, but the the idea is that he can't make a state prosecution go away with a pardon, but I think it is at least broadly assumed that it's got to be put on hold. You can't have a, it's, you know, president can't do their job if they're facing criminal charges. So I think it's at least assumed that he could put the Georgia case on hold. He could freeze it for the duration of his presidency, probably, whether you, whether you think that's a good thing or not. But there's no presidential, president can't have to cut a check. <laughs> There's just, you know, it, it, that that just is what it is. So, but as as you say, being president certainly wouldn't hurt. Let's put it that way. Um, right. Probably makes the the different princes in uh, the Gulf be a little more sympathetic and everything. But this is, I mean, the thing to keep in mind is, I, uh, you know, we, we have no idea what Trump is worth. I think it is. It's, it's always been generally assumed that he is probably technically a billionaire, sort of, in asset terms. But that could mean something like he's worth a little over a billion dollars, maybe upwards of $2 billion. But if that's the case, not only does he not have $500 million in cash, $550 million, but that's a big amount of money for him even even if you're talking about liquidating assets right this is so we're we're not joking when we say does he have the money is you know and even i mean think about it this way think about whatever your net wealth is whether that's you know some money on a house or your car or just what's in your bank account if you have to give up half of it that's a pretty big fucking deal right so this is this is real money not and not just on the question of of liquidity like it's it's real money totally and you know i think credit to tish james on this one because this case almost died uh, amid kind of changing hands between the elected new york um you know law enforcement positions it's hard to prove this kind of case as we know white collar crime in general uh is is never really prosecuted um as much as it should be and in this case you know it's all it has to be evidentiary based especially because to make her case she had to prove intent which is always really hard right especially when trump always operates with this kind of double-edged sword of maliciousness and clumsiness uh almost to give himself plausible deniability of like you know on the one hand going around saying no one knows as much about new york real estate as me and then being like oh 
I had to, I had to what? Like it, it wasn't the accountant's job to, you know, fact find that all my assets were worth what I said they were. Like that's a shock. That comes as a, a plum surprise to me, right? So I think it's a big deal, you know, and this is one that's really gotten lost in the shuffle because we've got all these felony cases kind of a lot of them moving forward on similar tracks right now. Um, so this one just kind of reared up its head and it's like, oh yeah, <laughs> by the way, you're going to owe, you're on the line for half a billion dollars and you can't play in the real estate market for a few years as just, you know, the, the initial blow before these other four cases, which have been broadly considered the more serious ones for him, um, ha- you know, haven't even really hit their crescendo yet. Yeah, and it, his reaction to this one seems more intense than his, I mean obviously he hasn't been convicted in the other felony cases but his response in in some ways I I have been struck by the fact that lots of commentators have treated this like you know another day another another loss but it's not a loss cuz he's Trump and nothing matters and he'll never you know he'll never be held to account and all this stuff and you know look there's there's certainly some in the broadest sense reason to feel that way but he seemed to be he seemed to be one of the few commentators who thought it was a really big deal like he was really really upset about it and uh, you know at some level maybe that's because it's money and money is the real thing to him and some ways it is maybe the fact that being president doesn't really matter here there's no i i no one thinks there's a presidential immunity from from civil money damages that's that a makes no sense and no one is even suggesting anything like that and this is this is big money and he cares about money but at a certain level you know it's 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 come to fruition those haven't come to fruition and you know are these other cases gonna come to trial before you know, before the election and all of that stuff. You know, the other thing that comes to mind to me is that there, in in some of his criminal cases, there's a point at which he gets rid of the TV lawyers and brings in real lawyers because it's serious and you have to you have to have real lawyers. And at least from what I can tell, he never did that here. He had that, you know, car garage lawyer. What is her name again? Alina Alina Haba. Alina Haba. Uh, he had her and she was making a lot of kind of, you know, kind of, she's not, she has no idea what this kind of law, law is about. Um, she's not a, she's a lawyer, but barely. And I don't know if, and he had a couple other people in the mix, but they don't seem to have been serious lawyers for this for this kind of case he repeatedly attacked and denigrated the judge which you know judge is supposed to be above that kind of stuff and i think at some level the idea there to the extent that there was a strategy is that it's perverse but it has a certain logic to it where you go into the appellate case and you say your honor my my client is a complete freak and was so nasty to the judge, it is impossible to believe that th- that the judge wouldn't be biased because my because my client is such a total asshole. Having said all that, though, he definitely seemed to approach this whole trial as a messaging opportunity and not a case where I want I need to win this case because the 
the the consequences are are pretty steep. So I, I don't know how one, you know, do you reconcile that? I don't. I also don't have a sense of would better lawyers have done better here? I don't. I I don't get a lot of sense that it's like he could have easily beaten these charges, but his lawyers were idiots. I mean, they were idiots, but I think the prosecu- the uh, plaintiffs you know, the state of New York kind of had, you know, kind of had him dead to rights, at least as far as my understanding is. I think this is such an example of what probably pisses him off is like, if it wasn't him, he probably wouldn't have gotten caught. Right. And I, I think that's true. I mean, there's such little oversight in this kind of thing. And, you know, something that came up a lot in the the filings is, you know, the idea that the Trump organization is a private company, it's not publicly traded, and that like drastically limits the amount of kind of uh, underlying documentation that say the insurance underwriters um, get to see. And so the very system itself puts a huge amount of trust in the companies for whom it's in their best interest to get these favorable loan conditions. So it is already like kind of a ridiculous rickety system um, that is so inviting of fraud that it just now makes me think that this is probably happening to some degree all of the time. But I think it's a kind of thing where, you know, Trump doesn't usually bother to cover his tracks because he's just so accustomed to kind of, yeah, your rules aren't for me. I'm not going to follow them. I'm going to do this my own way. And then as he always does, you know, when push comes to shove, it's somebody else's fault. It's blame the accountants, you know, it's, well, well, we didn't know we were supposed to be doing that. Shouldn't someone have told us it's, it's a victimless crime, right? Everybody got repaid, um, which the judge did kind of address and say, you know, this kind of thing affects the whole marketplace. uh, Even if there are no, even if they managed to repay the loans this time, you know, that doesn't indicate that the next person to do this would actually be able to do that, you know, on and on and on. So I agree with you. I think this is the his probably his biggest complaint is just if if I was just a normal low profile rich guy kind of fudging the numbers, I would have been able to merely go on my way because which of me. Is, I don't probably to do it. which is probably true, which yeah, is probably which true. is true, but, but, but also, it's not that good. But a also not a, well. It it is it is it is entirely not a defense. It's it, you know a life is not fair. It is often you know I had this idea in. Um, in college that I was going to write a book because there was this pattern. It was something about the New York media world in the 1980s where rich, obnoxious person would get involved in some scandal, but not a legal scandal, right? Just a scandal for being an obnoxious idiot. Like Leona Helmsley is a good example. Uh, A lot of people who were eventually hit, what is it? Ivan Bosky? All these cases you know, they got really unpopular in the New York tabloid swirl. And then prosecutors thought, you know what? Let's take a look. Let's take a look at what we're talking about. And they found crimes. And, you know, in some ways, these were, is it fair? You know, you, you draw a lot of attention, then prosecutors take a look. And that's, that's life, right? But it's not a legal defense. It's not a legal defense. You would have never caught my crime if you hadn't have looked. That's not a that's right. not a def, that's not a defense. Although you know it it he he does make this point, kind of like I borrowed the money, I paid back the money. The banks aren't complaining. Who's the who's the victim here that you that I have to have to pay all this money for? But again, you can't make fraudulent representations on financial documents. 
that's, as I said, you know, if, if you hadn't have looked, you wouldn't have found my crime is just not, is not a legally solid defense. And here we are. Exactly. So let's talk a little bit about the Fonnie Willis stuff. Uh, This was Thursday and Friday of last week. Listeners will remember that this is the kind of spoke of the case that has to do with this whole thing where she, you know, did she or did she not kind of hire her boyfriend to the prosecutorial team and is or is not that enough to taint the whole case that potentially he used some of the salary he made from being on this team to take them on vacations, thus kind of enriching her. I I still do feel like the taste, the case taint piece of this, you need to like squint your eyes and kind of tilt your head to see what is wrong about it or what, what goes beyond just kind of an embarrassing episode of total bad judgment and impropriety into any way of meaningfully changing the the case itself, right? Like, you know, you could see it maybe if they were on opposite sides, but having them both be on the prosecutor's team is like, okay, you know. Anyway, though, honestly, the judge is taking this more seriously than I am and had two days of witnesses and hearings that our colleague Josh Kavinsky um, covered for us. It seems to kind of be a mixed bag. You had one woman who's an ex-friend and potentially disgruntled employee of Fonnie Willis's who I think gave the most probably damning testimony so far in terms of confirming that their relationship predated his hiring, which is kind of the whole case rests on that to some degree, because if, if that's unable to be proven, you know, he wasn't hired then he wasn't hired because he was her boyfriend. He was hired and then they started dating, which is not like all that unusual for adults sharing a workplace, right? Um, well, and also she, in, in, in case, it, it is actually almost sometimes almost common on a big case because it's not just like a workplace. I mean, common may be overstated. It is almost a cliche that people working on a big, big case things happen between them because you're it's it's an intense everybody working together thing for long periods of time blah 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 blah. right and so at this point we've had two days of this testimony it's been kind of bedeviled the whole time by what evidence is admissible all the people involved basically are lawyers so there's all kind of like attorney client stuff going on and there's still figuring that out some of the more kind of outlandish arguments the judge has been pretty quick to slap down if if our listeners saw any snippets of this, it was probably the Fonnie Willis quotes, you know, where she says, I'm not on trial here. And she put up this very kind of, um, you know, hostile uh, performance where she really tried to avoid kind of answering any questions that she didn't want to, like a lot of filibustering, that kind of thing. Honestly, I'm at the place where I'm like, some of the testimony so far kind of shored up what she's saying. Some of the testimony so far contradicted what she's saying. I, it's not that clear to me that the defendants have kind of ironclad proof beyond talking to various people who think that's when their relationship started. You know, it, it is the kind of thing where it's, it's funny to think of in a normal case, you know, your friends kind of hauled up on stage and being like, and when exactly did the flirtation begin? Like, they don't know, like other people don't keep track of that stuff. Um, so, you know, it is farcical well, kind of, you know, and also that, that, <sighs> People often have long periods of time with 
some chumminess, some flirtation, some tension before, you know, the relationship starts. And that's normal. And like, is a third party who wasn't even that close of friends going to say, oh, yeah, they were, they were, you know, it's very hard, even if you think everybody is being on the level to have any idea of those kind of things. And a lot of this seemed to degenerate if if you step back to a kind of like, you know, this is, you know, date X is when the relationship started. But do we know that a year later, there wasn't one late night that they hooked up? I mean, that that's kind of that a lot of that was that's really and even like I'm kind of sanitizing it by saying hooked up. Right. But that's kind of what this came down to. And I, you know, we I, and I'm glad we did. We went all in covering this with a live blog. And I was on the days that this was happening, I, A, because I was working on other stuff and partly because I, I, I just wanted to leave it to other members of the team. I kind of just didn't, I, I didn't want to hear it at some level, but I had a, I'm not sure a dramatically different reaction to this based on the hearing because I wasn't on full I mean I went into this kind of like you know I'm not really sure they have an argument of what is wrong here but what was she thinking terrible judgment blah 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 and as it was going and and to back to the pre-hearing you know Josh Menzraya to get into the legal, you know, the legal, legal jargon, you know, terrible judgment, bad optics, blah, 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 blah. And then when I saw the hearing, I regretted even that level of taking this seriously. Of the, you know, the bad judgment, the optics. And I really came into what the fuck was the judge thinking? Mm Mm-hmm. Allowing the us exact to, same way. Allowing us to get here because again, and I was only hearing it sort of out of one ear. I was not I was not part of our team covering it, but I'd see things on the live blog and stuff like that. And from what I could tell, what we really got down to was okay, their relationship started at this time. But did they fuck a year before one night? Do we, do we, you know, and, and I mean, like, and I'm like, saying, does that count? <laughs> yeah. Does yeah. that count? Did that create a thing? And I'm sort of like, how the fuck did we get here? How did we get here when you are, you're actually litigating this? Because that is, I mean, that was what we were lit. That was what was being litigated. There's when their relationship started, you know, a relationship, but like there was that time they were somewhere alone. We don't know what happened. Did they do it? And just like, so when she got up there and basically said, I'm not on trial here. It's none of your fucking business. My reaction was like, you are so right. You are so right. And, you know, uh, there is a whole level of this, very real level of this, of does a white man get to this place? Or is this like a black woman? And that was definitely her opinion. Like, it is none of your fucking business. And like, I am not on trial here. And 
I just felt like, you know, you were right. You were right. And, and let me just say one more thing, Kate, that, you know, the whole, what, among all the other things that make me feel that way is the purported conflict here, the purported self-dealing is so notional, such a stretch. It's just not a real argument. It's such a stretch. And again, and it gets them to hear, at a certain point, you have to say, you are not going to live in the world of optics. Because yeah, really important case, super important case, high stakes. You want to not give the not give the bad guys anything to grab onto. But you know, you can't again, there's just this point at which optics is intentionally this vague blob that goes anywhere and everywhere because it has no definition, it has no contours, it has no borders to it. But in any case, and I, I apologize, guys, I just want to kind of get through this point. I, I just went to fuck this whole thing. This is bullshit. That's how I felt too. I have to say my first reaction was like, I'm not really sure why the judge didn't ask for briefing on this and kind of read the best case from both sides. Like it's, I, it's super unclear to me why he wanted a hearing knowing that it would be televised and degenerate into this. And that yeah. the circus like conditions are already pretty likely given the salacious questions. And to your point of the when did their relationship start? I mean, same goes for what would be the crux of the self-dealing accusation, which is how are you going to prove, you know, from kind of Nathan Wade's general pot of money that he paid for the trip to Aruba from the prosecutorial team salaries or from money he already had, like, unless his accounts are very bifurcated in a kind of an OCD way, you're never, I mean, you're never going to know that these things seem fundamentally unprovable. And as you say, the big gotcha doesn't really seem to matter that much. And the only reason we're talking about this at all is because the judge is taking it seriously and is seeming to, at least so far through his behavior, indicate that he kind of gives some credence to this argument that they might have to take the prosecution away from the DA's office and give it to somebody else. Now, I'm not, I'd be kind of shocked if the past two days have confirmed him or have, have kind of confirmed that take for him because they've been so contradictory and muddled as is the nature of this fact finding. But yeah, I mean, it's so, so hard to see this as anything but a black woman is going to have her private relationship exposed in a humiliating, really vulnerable way that it's very, very difficult to see a, a white man kind of in this position being being forced through this, you know, because if this ends and the judge is like, there's not enough there, there, the DA's team, you know, we're back on track. Then what? I mean, she's just been kind of beaten up for like general entertainment and for no real reason. And I think zooming out, I don't really think this matters that much to begin with. Like the whole, uh, this taints the case, you know, this makes it look politically motivated. Trump's followers are going to think that every case against him is politically motivated. Like that ship has sailed. And the only degree that I think it matters is for kind of marginal people, the people who are still swayable, um, if they kind of buy that line of reasoning or not. But I, I'm just not that worried about it, A, because 
again, he says this with everything. You either believe it or you don't. And I think the the fact that he says it about everything makes it somewhat of a weaker argument in, in a more kind of substantially favorable case to him. And two, we're up to our eyeballs in this. We're working in it. And it still can be hard to kind of keep the cases straight, keep the, the judges separate, the, the main players separate, the charges involved. So... I really don't think that a much a kind of low information voter who's going to decide the election is going to be like, but you know what? Bonnie Willis's boyfriend like makes me really uncomfortable. And I think that's going to sway me here. Like, come on. You know, this is this is kind of circus stuff for the politics. 400 people who are already really into this. More of this scintillating content after these messages. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Back to the show. I also think that, you know, at the end of the day, these are felony criminal cases. And the most important part of this is actually the verdict and the punishment. And look, the best case for the Trump people on this is that, yes, rules law, you you get your day in court. You're convicted or you're not, and you're punished. And that's the rule of law. There's no rule of law that you you have to endure the six-month cloud, which may affect your election, right? I mean, that's they actually have a pretty good case on that, right? There's no that that shouldn't that that's not actually part of the rule of law. So at a certain level, I'm not even that concerned about it. I'm concerned about people not being held to account for breaking the law. There's no there's no big argument of principle about you should also lose three percentage points in your election outcome. That's not real. I mean, that may be real, but that's not like that you you should get upset because that is a the system is being broken or something like that. And so the whole thing about like, you know, low information voters and the the taint and all this kind of stuff is kind of like, yeah, you may be sitting in jail and and some people may think Fonnie Willis was a crook, but I don't know what the good that's doing you. Right, you're still you're still in jail. So, at a, at a, at, a, at a certain level, I, it it kind of just doesn't matter. Um, I, it doesn't not matter about the ugliness of this spectacle. I just mean it doesn't matter for the for the for the final case. And I'll I'll say this: I was 
I think she did, again, without having watched it moment by moment, I think that she, through aggressively, you know, metaphorically charging into the court and not not being defensive, not being, oh, okay, I don't remember, just saying like, like, fuck off, and this is bullshit. I think she actually helped, uh, at least for some people, I don't know how many, kind of catalyzed the reaction I had. Like, this is bullshit. Yeah. And just the last thing I'd add is, I think the only danger here is delay, right? And that goes for every Trump case. Like, anything that slows it down is... Mm-hmm unequivocally bad. And and in that bucket, this is bad. This is wasting time on this kind of spoke of the case and delaying from the meat of it. But as we're seeing with, you know, almost all of them, except weirdly the Stormy Daniels one, which is kind of <laughs> clipping along at, a, at an efficient pace. It's that's like an, the turtle and hare of the, I know, of the right, Trump yeah. cases. Right, right, right. Um, but, you know, it's, it's the nature of the beast. Like Trump has discovered that it's pretty easy to slow things down in this procedural way uh, that's dogging all of the cases. Um, so, you know, at, at this point, it's, it's just got to be a speed thing, right? It's like you want this judge to kind of like, okay, you, you've seen what they have to offer it was kind of muddy at best can we just put this to bed and and move on because time is of the essence here and we're just steadily kind of charging ahead through all this silliness so i don't know if i don't i have no idea if this is what the judge is thinking but i did it was suggested to me by one pretty knowledgeable lawyer this person figured he wants to make sure this is absolutely ironclad on appeal mm-hmm. and so he is you know, kind of giving giving them every benefit of the doubt, getting a factual record in there, doing all this stuff because he doesn't want to create a you know a, an easy way for them to to beat it on appeal. And so I have no idea if that was the if the, if that was the the plan. But I just wanted to put that out there because it, at least it. In terms of our judging the judge and what he was thinking, it's possible that he will, I mean, and of course it will be on, you know, they will, they will come at every single angle of this on appeal. So it is possible that he was thinking, I don't want to make it like I just said, nope, sorry, this is bullshit and kind of move on because that's, that's, you know, that gives them all sorts of possibilities on appeal. So who knows, but maybe, maybe. Okay, so we have uh, two more topics to kind of address fairly quickly here, one of which is this key witness in the Biden impeachment probe getting arrested in one of the most delightfully kind of schadenfreude moments. Um, You know, they scooped him up as he landed at the airport in Vegas. It's this guy who there seemed to be kind of three primary instances where he told the FBI, like, you know, I have... I have this various kind of dirt on Biden, blah, blah, blah. Come to find he's a pretty steady Biden antagonist, you know, um, really wants him to lose the election. But and I want to say this is not our first indication that this guy was like a less than reliable source. We'd had already, you know, various kind of testimony about this person debunking uh, you know, what he had, what he had said, what he had testified to questioning his veracity. But, you know, that didn't stop, uh, you know, Kevin McCarthy from announcing this as like the pillar of the case. uh, When he started the impeachment inquiry from Comer for ages saying like, this is the best whistleblower in the history of whistleblowers, you know, he's he's steadfast, blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, I went on this other podcast at the end of last week, and the host asked, you know, 
do you think this this is the end of impeachment? Like, does this kill impeachment? And it's like, to the extent that the impeachment push was alive, I guess. But even while this was kind of the crown jewel of the argument, it was pretty clear it was running on fumes. Like every single you know witness the Republicans bring in keep being like, oh yeah, no, Joe Biden wasn't a part of this at all. Sorry, man. You know, we, we've had that like multiple times now. Um, so this is just kind of the latest blow to a case that was pretty clearly always set up on a sand foundation. At least you have Republicans now being like admitting that the votes aren't moving in the right direction to impeach Mm -hmm. Biden. I mean, this feels like kind of to me why they went after Mayorkas because it felt like, well, we got to impeach somebody and they don't have the votes to do it with Biden because Comer has so like epically failed to dig up anything, Uh, you know, not even though there was not a lack of trying to do that, there was no lack of using resources and searching to the ends of the earth to find something. So God, what just a hilarious, enjoyable little nugget, especially given that this was of course, another Republican prosecutor. Who's the one who, you know, brought charges and arrested him and all the rest. There's I don't know where this is going to go, but uh, uh, Marcy Wheeler brought it up and it's at least keeping an eye on that. This was one of Weiss's, the Republican prosecutors, witnesses, right? He hadn't he hadn't brought charges on the basis of of that. He hasn't brought charges against Hunter Biden, you know, tied to the Biden crime family and all, all that stuff. I mean, he is he has at least as far as we know, you know, brought charges tied to the more kind of ordinary, you know, tax payments and all that kind of stuff with Hunter Biden. But one thing to to keep in mind and it's or just keep an eye on that that Marcy was sort of pointing to is you get all sorts of witnesses who come, you know, people who come forward talking to prosecutors. And uh, many times you don't believe they're credible. You don't believe it would it would sell in court. You don't believe they're telling the truth. But to charge them with not telling the truth, you've got to be certain. Because again, it's not, there, there's all these different standards you're applying. So the point is to say, you're not, we don't only not believe you, we can prove you're lying. That is a really, really, really heavy standard. And, and what Marcy was getting at is he was still kind of holding out that that part of the investigation was a real investigation. In other words, he was still saying, hey, we've got this witness. We've got to run it to ground. We've got to see if this is true. And then all of a sudden, he's 100% certain that that guy's lying. And that's a, that's a quick shift. So what was that about exactly? And I think she kind of hinted that it came right as Hunter Biden's attorneys were asking for more stuff for, on discovery. Hmm. Basically, you know, Let's hear everything. You need to tell us more about what your, it's probably not fair to call him his star witness, you know, but one of your witnesses said about Hunter and all of a sudden he's charging this guy with lying to federal authorities. I don't think we know anything's wrong there, but it's at least, it's at least a little, it's at least a little weird. So it's worth keeping an eye on what, what happened there. And there's the additional layer to everything you just said that's, you know, law enforcement entities like the FBI don't like to charge whistleblowers because it'll have a chilling effect, right? Yeah. Like people who are earnest whistleblowers might be like, well, it's not really worth 
potentially going to jail over. So I'm just going to keep it to myself in case, you know, these details are wrong or I have a misunderstanding or whatever. Um, But yeah, it just adds to everything you just said, which is this is strange on many levels, both timing wise and the kind of punitiveness of the action itself. So yeah, I think definitely worth keeping an eye on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, uh, well, what is our... Final we're topic. We're going to end with, uh, yeah, as you, Josh, kind of previewed in the intro, the great Ezra Klein debates of 2023, which was yet another one of these pieces of like, Biden's too old, he's going to lose, panic mode. And then, as you kind of say in your piece about this, it's it's structured the same way every single person who's made this argument has done it, which is kind of, you can nod along for the beginning, right? Because it's like, I personally think Biden's been a really good president, a surprisingly good president, you know, competent and uh, productive beyond what many people thought he'd be able to do with Congress, basically split with a split in the Senate. But people aren't buying that argument. And this election is too high stakes to take any risks. And we've now reached the point where the polls aren't good. His approval isn't good. Biden should step aside. And it's funny because you can almost get all the way to that point being like, I, I see what you're saying, right? Like it's not a totally ridiculous thesis up till that point. But that's the point at which it every single time with everyone who makes this argument, it just veers into such fantasy politics that I'm like, why are you pretending this is a serious thing? Like in this, in in, in Ezra Klein's article, it's this like, big convention come to Jesus where Biden has kind of graciously stepped back and let the party activists, uh, you know, make their call and we're all going to get behind that new person. And apparently it's not going to be dramatic or contentious at all. It's going to be very peaceful. Well, there's um, going to be a lot of good press. It's going to generate a lot of positive press and excitement. Right. And, I'm and like, then that candidate will come out. Yeah strong with the united voices of the Democratic Party behind them, which is always the part at which you're like, what are you smoking? Like, what are you what are you talking about? You know, I feel like it's become a meme, almost the brokered convention thing, because it's so in the category of like mint the trillion dollar coin, like the kind of the fun workarounds that get tossed around in moments of tension that never come to fruition and that always have logistical problems that would make it all but impossible to transpire in the actual political world that we live in. Yeah. I mean, I I wrote this piece yesterday, as I, as I alluded to that, I like, I didn't want to write just because I'm so I'm, I'm, I don't like writing about this issue because it's, it's just so frustrating to write about, but you know, and you can take a peek. It's in the editor's blog. If you want to, if you, if you want to see it, it's on the site. There's two issues. One is the Kate, one is the one Kate just mentioned, the kind of, you know, the Thunderdome convention, uh, which somehow is going to be a big kind of unity thing, even though it's going to be like, you know, taking seven cats and sewing them into a bag and like seeing who comes out alive, right? Because, you know, ironically, it's true what everybody always says that the Democrats have a lot of strong future presidential candidates. And that's almost a problem. Right. Because it's not like you've got like one person like, oh, we all know it has to be this person. Got a lot of people and uh, they all want it. And if they have a chance, they're really going to fight for it. And you're going to have the, you know, the Gaza activists and you're going to have the Israel activists and you're going to have the Medicare for all people. And you're going to have every you're going to have the border people. Everybody's going to it's it's going to be 
a very chaotic thing. And because actual conventions are chaotic because no one, the idea that you have any idea that people are going to come out of that. Well, we had an argument, but we're all super pumped and we're all totally excited about how it went. And we're all totally fine that our, the choice has been made by a few thousand party insiders because that's totally legit. That's how, like what? But the even bigger thing is, and, and this is kind of the crux of Klein's argument, is that, okay, how do you get there? How, how, how does this actually happen? And he has this line where he says it with refreshing candor, but with a total inability or unwillingness to recognize how unlikely and fantastical that is. And that is, you need a public campaign by people like Ezra Klein and Jim Carville and, you know, whoever else to convince the people in Biden's inner circle to get Biden to step down. So you got to convince Anita Dunn or, you know, Donilon or Rashetti or these guys to go to Biden. I mean, so these are the people who, by definition, in, in the entire political world, are the most loyal to Biden, who've known him the longest, are most invested in him, are in the middle of running a campaign. And to be cynical about it, the people whose careers will, you know, not end, but end at the top of the, you know, at the pinnacle of politics, they, you just, all you need to do is convince them to go and convince Biden to step down. Like, uh, okay, I mean, I guess you could, you could um, convince the, the manager of the Yankees to activate me and I could pitch a few games, but like, that's, that's not a strategy. Like, what? That's completely, and it's, it's funny because a lot of people I have this conversation with will say, well, okay, yeah, that's hard, but he needs to, but he needs to step down. You know, he needs to step aside. Okay, but he's not, he's not going to step aside. So, and, and it's, it's almost like it, 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 people want the, I don't know, the psychic relief of saying that he needs to step aside and we need someone else, but that's not going to happen. I mean, I, I've been covering these kind of people for 25 years and, and, the people in your inner circle are are basically you. They're not going to. And it's funny. I was I was <laughs> I was talking to this one reader and uh, you know uh, shooting emails back and forth with his own readers. Like, well, you know, Jill spends enough time with him that she can get the message across. I'm like, okay, now we're Jill Biden's gonna like. What are you guys talking about? And the the funny thing is, is that I looked. You know, uh, RCP is has been increasingly right-wing and kind of bogus as a political average. But right now, Biden is 1.1 points behind Trump in their average. And that's not great. I mean, that, you know, are you anxious, Just Yes. Fuck yes. It is, this is not great. This is scary on, a, on 20 different reasons. But if you're like Anita Dunn or like Rashetti or, or any of these people, do you think you're going to point to that and you're like, he is down one point. This is hopeless, guys. Do the right thing. Like, even if you, even if you assume that the premise is right and he's going to lose or, he, or someone else is less likely to lose, these people are by definition dead-enders. And I don't, I don't mean that in the sense of like, they're lying to themselves. They're his people. They're his inner circle, right? 
to think that you were going to point to that and say like, it's February and he's one point down, you know, see the writing on the wall. It's over. It's, it's just, I, I, uh, <laughs> I, I, I I, I don't I don't understand what some people are thinking. And again, I I see him. I see him kind of. He's sort of low energy. He kind of pauses. I get it. He's old. You you don't you wish you wouldn't have an old candidate, but you do. And this is it. So what are we talking about, people? Yeah, there's just a few points. One, it's really weird to me that this kind of dream scenario keeps being portrayed as like the less risky option than running <laughs> Biden against Trump when it's like. Right. Because as you say, having a, a Thunderdome convention where you know the different factions of the Big Ten party are going to be in very heated debate, that's not a risky proposition. Like, it's not risky to have Biden collect all the delegates and then say, never mind, not to mention undemocratic. Like, the voters will have spoken by that point. It's not risky that this plan falls apart, that nobody coalesces behind anyone else. And now you have just probably fatally weakened your nominee who's going on to the general like that's an insane premise also in all of these fantasy politics situations every single person writing this says well we've got a good bench right there's Shapiro there's Whitmer there's Buttigieg whatever as if in this case Biden passing over his vice president, the most obvious person to take the job and the person he specifically chose to allay concerns about his age and the you know incapacitation that might come with that. The idea that skipping her over when black voters and specifically black women voters are the undisputed backbone of the Democratic Party, the idea that you could do that without any blowback, without any rightful blowback from the people who would be furious that the black vice president, previous senator, previous AG is not even in the conversation of the heirs who would take the nomination in this case, and at the very best would have to fight for it with a random smattering of governors who who people think are more natural heir apparent, you know, because they're white or maybe because the absence of the other kind of hampering minority statuses that she would have. Like, it's so, so ludicrous. And it, it, honestly, it's starting to anger me that we just keep having these pieces put out as if these are serious proposals that voters really need to mull over without admitting that trying any of this probably wouldn't work. And even the trying it opens up a whole minefield that that previously or that doesn't exist right now. You know, it's just it's insane. It's crazy. I've almost never seen like just this fantasizing, this this playing out of a game of politics swaddled under the auspices of like serious commentator thinking like this is what the intelligentsia is chatting about. I, I couldn't agree more. You know, it's it's. <laughs> You, you put it very well. And that is the, I mean, the Harris thing. And it's funny. I actually have real questions, doubts, whatever you want to say about Harris as a candidate based on how 2020 went. Because I went into 2020 thinking like, wow, she, you know, she may be the one. She's kind of the, you know, got she's the full package, all that kind of stuff. and. In my mind, she ran a pretty poor campaign. 
And obviously she didn't win the nomination, but there are ways she didn't run a great campaign. But like many things in life, that's already been decided, right? We're done with that. She's the vice president. And, you know, if to the extent that we're kind of already in fantasy land of kind of like, oh, let's get rid of Biden. Let's choose someone else. I'd probably pick Whitmer. I like her. You know, she's one as governor. She basically kind of catalyzed taking her state from, you know, divided control to like, you know, democratic control everywhere. She's done very well. But the reality is she's never run at the national level. Never. Harris has. And it is also because I live in the real world, as you said, the idea you were going to pass over the, the black woman and, you know, constitutionally, obviously, if Biden were to die, she'd become president. It's pretty close in terms of candidate succession. She's next. You, you, you know, you'd need some huge reason so the idea that you're going to do that, which would really be like sticking a, a stick of dynamite in the center of the Democratic coalition and just lighting it. In Klein's thing, he just says, they're going to hash everything out at the convention and people will give speeches and basically kind of everybody's going to understand that Harris isn't the one. I'm like, no, I don't think that's it at all. I think that's insane. And insane, as you say, for pretty good reasons. For pretty good reasons, we have we've we've made this decision um, for every reason except for the fact that she's polls she's not polling that well. That's the whole. It's it's hard to it's hard to um, at a certain point it becomes hard to disentangle the different levels of fantasy here because we're already in fantasy world when where Anita Dunn convinces, you know, Ezra Klein convinces Anita Dunn to convince Joe Biden to step aside. And now we're to the point of, will everybody be cool when we tell Paris that notwithstanding her being vice president, being read in on all the ongoing crises, you know, having having worked with all the policies that it didn't work out for her. Sorry, too bad. Like, again, we're so far into fantasy land. It's hard to know what layers. I'll tell you this, you know, before... Um, this morning, I got an email from someone who I don't know that well, but I have known this person as a, you know, kind of professional colleague for a good 20 years. Uh, and this person is, you know, kind of still works in our profession at a high level, all that kind of stuff. And this person wrote me this email. I'm just going to read it. It's pretty short, but it gives <laughs> it, 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 it hits it at, at, at some points. It, it hits on the, uh, the riskiness question pretty well. And also another one that's come up, which is the, the sort of the RBG uh, question, supposedly. I'm of course not supposed to have an opinion on this, but Ezra's plan strikes me as at least an order of magnitude riskier than having Biden run. Incumbency is a huge advantage, while history is littered with candidates who seem great on paper but are disastrous. Does anyone remember Ron DeSantis, Kamala Harris? My read on 2020 is that there were 
were actually very few Dems who could have beaten Trump, even though at the time, I assume there were several. Dems have the good fortune that one of those few candidates is actually going to be the nominee. Why are they incessantly whining about it? People seem to be conflating the Biden situation with the RBG situation, but the Supreme Court nominee, where someone else can step aside and you can pick someone else to ram through the Senate, is vastly different from a presidential election, where you need to persuade tens of millions of people that your guy is superior, and that candidate has to withstand months of relentless scrutiny. Obviously, it would be professional if the dude wasn't in his 80s. I mean, yeah. Of course, right? I mean, that's we all, we all, we all, we all grant that. But Dems basically know where the risk is with this guy, and it's pretty contained. Whereas the risk for an untested candidate is theoretically boundless. Tons of unknown unknowns. That's the end of the email. I mean, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. Yeah. Like, I mean, let me just say, you can say Biden should step aside now, less than a year out from the election. That he wait, is it less than a year? Yeah, it's yeah. less than it's, it's hard to keep so, track. It's 10, it's nine months, something like that. Right. Yeah. Okay. So you can say that Biden needs to drop out nine months or whatever before the election, that all of the delegate votes cast up till that point will be voided, that this decision will be made by some hardcore knot of party activists without say from the rest of the party, and that it should be a scrimmage between these various budding democratic powers in which the vice president is perhaps not even included, much less given an advantage based on some kind of tenuous reason like, well, we don't like what she ran in 2020 or she's not polling well versus running people who have never run on a national stage and who are also not polling well. But you cannot fucking say that that polling worse than her. Right. And but you can say all that. That is a crazy, but you are entitled to your opinion. But you cannot fucking say that that proposition is less risky than having Biden, who is older than we'd all like, run against Trump, someone who he's beaten before, who by many factors is running in a more favorable environment now, or at least one that is dramatically less favorable to Donald Trump. Like that's insane. And it's just, it's crazy that like, you know, I almost feel this word is so overused, but I do almost feel gaslit by the amount of like serious people, you know, all caps, serious people who are pretending like this is an option or one that is not just so profoundly loaded with existential risk to the Democratic Party before this election. Yeah. And, and I don't, you know, I look, I, I don't, I, I tried to be clear in what I wrote. I'm not bashing Ezra. He's a great guy, blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm a friend to all Ezra's. Um, but what struck me is, you know, people write all sorts of things. What is striking to me is that everybody responded to this, like, he's opened the floodgates. He has, he has really put it together. He has given people a, he's, he's, He's taken all the amorphous stuff and he's he's created a path. He's 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 created an argument. He's pulled it all together. And uh, you know, like that no he hasn't. He has it's it's really I mean I I I clearly I don't have a lot of original thoughts because I keep coming back to what I said in the in 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 the post. He I think what I said there is he's he has he has stated a very pessimistic but not unreasonable in you know overview of the election. And he has solved it by a deus ex machina plot twist, right? It's sort of like at the end of, uh, at the end of the kind of, you know, 19th century plays where everything has to, everything has to happen well. And, and 
suddenly the 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 pauper is actually a prince and 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 the bad guy something bad happened to him and everything's great i i still and this is why i kind of i don't like writing about this because i don't i don't know what else to say that this is a scary election and biden has a lot of strengths but he has a big liability which is that he's old and he seems old he he seems older than he did i mean not surprisingly than he did five years ago when you get that old five years is a, is a lot of time and that's an issue and that that's the reality and but the other reality is that the other potential plans are even riskier than running this guy that's the reality and there's also no way to even get to that scenario because he's already the nominee and i don't see how you're going to convince him not to run and sometimes you just have to say this is scary and there's no way to make it not scary other than to do our best also i'm sorry but this was not like an original take either i mean i know it spurred like a revolution in the chattering classes because ezra klein is someone who is generally supportive of biden so having him write a piece like this is like oh my god things have gotten really bad now but like Bill Crystal was doing the same extremely patronizing take months ago where he was like, you know, it should be a free for all fight. And if if Harris comes out on top, then she's just a stronger candidate for it. Right. Like this dumb shit has been circulating for ages. <laughs> and it's just it's so it's so stupid and it's such a waste of time. And like, I don't want to be one of those, you know, resistancy Twitter people. But it is true that it's crazy to spend this amount of time like kind of dithering up on this obvious, widely acknowledged, widely talked about weakness of Joe Biden, whereas Trump's cases are basically treated as like the the most takey that kind of mainstream media can get with it is like, oh, this is kind of this is unprecedented, right? Like this is new for the for a former president to be experiencing these things. And it's never, gee, maybe that's a big weakness for Trump, right? Like maybe Republicans should be worried about their candidate, but it just it doesn't blow like that. For Trump, it's like, well, we expect him to be corrupt. So this isn't really a surprise. So it's just kind of a matter of fact coverage. Whereas for Biden, it's a whole you know, it's it left the realm of like fact. And we really are into fantasy politics, but that's just countenanced because it's under the auspices of, you know, the New York Times and all these like big serious writers and everything. And it's just annoying because any critique of that just gets conflated as like, well, you don't want to talk about Biden's age. Like you're not appreciating that it's a big problem. It's like, you can appreciate that it's a big problem and also think that this isn't going to end on a trick play and pretending it is is stupid and a waste of everybody's time. Well, that's and you made the point that I, I wanted to return to as sort of a final point that there is this, if you make the arguments that Kate and I are making, people say, oh, we're all supposed to shut up and just clap louder, right? And, you know, that is kind of, you know, when did you stop eating your wife kind of question, kind of you can't, you know, how do you, how do you respond to that? But I think there is a way to respond to that, which is that Klein's idea is that we should spend the spring having a public pressure campaign, you know, writing editorials, trying to communicate to uh, Steve Reschetti, Anita Dunn, these kind of people that Biden 
is too old, frail. He should probably just resign now. He's such a, a wisp, right? That I don't think that helps. Like, what if your plan doesn't work? I don't think spending the next four months talking about how ancient and decrepit Biden is, is going to help him win. And since your plan is not going to work, yeah, I think we should accept that he's old. But, you know, this is what this is how campaigns run. You accentuate the positive, you de-emphasize the negative, and you try to win the campaign. And that's kind of the only thing there. So I, I guess I've, I have uh, uh, demonstrated by my tone of voice and affect why I don't like talking about this or reading or writing about it, because people, you know, life is hard and we often don't have all the choices that we want to have. And we, we still have to make a choice sometimes from, from bad, uh, you know, bad options. And, and with this, with this person who, you know, the, the emailer wrote about, which I think is a good point is that this isn't just kind of like, yes, he's, he's, he's decrepit and almost dead and all this kind of stuff, but we have no choice. He's actually probably the best shot we have. So it's not, you know, we get we get into, I kind of realize that I'm not going to convince people of that, um, but it it probably is the case. So what are we talking about? Like, like get, you know, come back to, come back to planet earth where we need to get Joe Biden elected president. And that's the reality. Yep. Okay. All right. All right, we have we have we have flogged this thing. We have flogged we have we have flogged Joe Biden's 81-year-old body. And look, he's still he's resilient. He's still he's still he's still in it, right? Anyway, I think that's all we have for this week. So, uh guess that's all we got. See you next week. Later. The Josh Marshall podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song. And thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen. 